You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to episode 142 of Oculus Insider. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing quite excellent. I, I was going to start off with something entirely different, but Oculus announced a whole new head-mounted display, didn't they? Uh, they announced a few, yeah. So what's what's the big news out of the, the Oculus reveal? I mean, I guess it depends on what you're looking at. If you're looking for mass market appeal, the big news is this new $200 Oculus Go headset that's going to launch early 2018. Basically, think uh, Samsung Gear VR, but you don't need to own a phone for it. Um, and I saw some people commenting on that, and they were saying, how can they really have a good experience and do it at a $200 price point? Um, and certainly, it's not going to be as good as, you know, $700 VR headset or whatever. But I think that people that are looking at it that way are thinking a little short-sighted. I mean, let's put it this way. Think about the think about the processing power that you have in a Apple TV 4K. You have, For $200 or $180, if you get the lower-end model with lower capacity, right? You have uh, uh, an A10X processor in there. So certainly for $200, especially when you're thinking about Apple's margins versus what everybody else is going to make, for $200, you could probably have a pretty, given where technology is at right now, you could probably have a pretty decent headset. So obviously we'll see when it comes out where it's at. Um, but then the other product that they announced that'll be coming some point next year for developers, not necessarily for consumers, is a completely wireless uh, advanced VR headset that will do room tracking and everything else um, and allow you to to kind of merge AR and VR in a way that really this is inevitably heading. So some pretty cool announcements from Facebook um, and Oculus and, you know, an exciting time for an emerging platform. Yeah, so I was thinking about some of the different challenges and why they would release something like this. It's probably running at a guess a Snapdragon processor, one of the Snapdragons, like an 821. Because, probably, yeah. You know, Qualcomm is very good at positioning those. So the the 199 price point is a great price point for people who've been scared off by the the large price points, the high price points of not just the headset, like an HTC Vive, for example, but also the gaming PC that's required to drive those. Right, right. You you, you had to have the the eight hundred dollar headset with all of its accessories to be able to do the positional tracking kind of thing, or if you bought the the Samsung Gear VR, you had to buy the headset and the phone. Right, and you had to have the graphics horsepower to be able to push all that because you're pushing two separate displays, one for each eye. the The goals have been to be able to get the cost down, right, mm -hmm. and to try and get the cost down without it being completely at the expense of performance. That's obviously the part of the trade-off here, right? But but you have to be able to do it and still be able to perform as a device. Uh, get rid of the cable, right? Having an HDMI cable and a data cable and tethering is is nuts. You know, if you're trying to do something in virtual reality and you've got a display over your eyes, you can't see where the tether is. You're liable <laughs> right, to trip and kill yourself. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um and, and it's not just those things. It's also practical problems like field of view. You know, humans have great peripheral vision. And when you don't have that wide a field of view, it can be very disorienting. The other thing that's disorienting is if the display doesn't catch up quite as quickly as your hand movement, right? If you're doing hand tracking with the, uh, the, the for lack of a better word, wands that you hold in your hands as a part of these kinds of experiences and there's a 40 millisecond delay between where your hand is, it doesn't sound like much. But 40 milliseconds is enough to be nausea-inducing because it, you know between that and the field of view, you don't know where your hands are, right? You expect them to be somewhere, and they aren't there yet. 
Yeah, if you think about when you're on your Mac or you're on your iPhone and the user interface gets stuttery, it's an annoyance. If the user interface and the experience gets stuttery on a VR headset, it's more than an annoyance. It might make it's your you throw whole world. up. We <laughs> <laughs> might throw up. So one of, one of the other problems that they've had is is how do you draw an immersive world, right? We talk about immersion as being the point of these things. But when you're in a VR system, because it's using massive amounts of, of addressable RAM and massive amounts of GPU, uh, you can't draw that big of a world. And so one of the tricks has been to really do the full render on the world that's in front of your eyes and de-res everything that's off to the sides Yeah, because you're not focusing on it. And that's a savings in performance that you can get. But all of these are the challenges that, that these kinds of things face. Yeah. And, and price is just one of many challenges that it has going forward. But the more heads that uh, these companies can get these devices on, I think the, the, the better chance the technology is going to have of carving out a bigger niche than it has right now. I, I, this is not anywhere near being mainstream in the way that a phone is mainstream or whatever. You know, pe- people forget even like the best-selling game consoles are nothing compared to the larger PC market, phone market, whatever. Um, these gaming and, and interactive type of experiences, even at their most successful, are still very small numbers comparatively. So, and and VR remains a subset of even that. So, I don't see a two hundred dollar headset changing that. Um, I think that the applications are going to have to change, and and I think that really the future, as Apple thinks as well, I think the future is in AR more than it's in VR. Um, but, uh, it's still exciting if you're interested in technology. Um, and certainly Apple agrees and that's why they have VR support in high Sierra. Um, and, and it was going to continue to get better and better and better. Right. And we ran a story about Apple's position on this, where Tim Cook said that AR glasses are just the, the technology to support augmented reality glasses is not mature enough yet for them. For all the reasons that we already talked about with performance and all that, you know, looking geeky, having heavy stuff on your head, a big battery, uh, seeing the world around you, you know, there's a million reasons why it's not there yet. And it may take a while to get there. I mean, we're talking about pretty advanced, lightweight, long-lasting, wearable kind of stuff uh, that, uh, you know, this is not something that could be easily solved in five years, I don't think. I think this is further down the road type of technology. Well, I I think it's gestational, right? There there are things that are being born now that will have the effects that that go to solve these problems. Right. You know, it's it's uh, it's all the things that we talked about last week with Apple Watch, right? What's going to be able to increase battery life? What's going to be able to increase brightness? What's going to be able to make it something that is capable to be always on for extended periods of time? clear displays that overlay the world around you and can well that's sense that's like the amazon patent that we covered a while back right the amazon patent that had spectacles that had two layers one which was uh electrophoretic i think where you could dim it or brighten to make it opaque or transparent mm-hmm. just by applying electricity to it so you could do that in behind the layer of uh of the display to be able to do augmented reality. And the processing power required. You need a camera on a device that would scan the world around you, depth sensing. It would need to be accurate. Um, you know, we talk about how bad the experience can get if you get some lag. How about if it gets the depth sensing wrong <laughs> and you're walking around with some sort of heads-up display that is not working properly? It could it could be a real problem. 
So the thing that I want to say about this Tim Cook quote is is you can look at it two ways, right? The quote is that uh, there are rumors and stuff about companies working on those. We obviously don't talk about what we're working on, but today I can tell you the technology itself doesn't exist to do that in a quality way, Cook said. Yeah. The display technology required, as well as putting enough stuff around your face, there's huge challenges with that. Yep. Now, you can look at this two ways. You can look at this as saying Apple says that they're not going to do it. Alternatively, you can look at this and in the context of the history where Steve Jobs used to say that we're not going to do something, and then they would go and find a way to either do it or find a way to present it differently that solved the same problem at the core, right? And and two examples of that would be when they said no one wants to ever watch video on an iPod, and then they proceeded to introduce a video iPod. <laughs> not Not on well, the iPods they had prior to that. Not on the iPods they had prior to that, but pretty much um, consecutively after having said they weren't going to do it, they went and did it. Well, this dovetails. New model. This dovetails very nicely into uh, last last week. I had the opportunity um, to go see Sir Johnny Ive speak at uh, the New Yorker Tech Fest uh, in Manhattan. And it was awesome. It was really cool. Uh, and I was right there in the second row, um, got to listen to him talk. Um, and of course, he didn't really say a lot revealing where they're going as a company, because why would they ever do that? But he did say something that's very pertinent to this discussion. And the quote was, he said, there are certain ideas that we have, and we're waiting for the technology to catch up. And I posted that quote on Twitter, and a lot of trolls were on there saying, oh, that's because Apple doesn't invent technology, they just steal from other people, blah, blah, blah. But what he's saying is certainly you and I here and and Tim Cook and Johnny Ive and anybody else who thinks about this kind of stuff can envision what the ideal augmented reality headset would look like. And then there's the reality of curtain technology and physics and everything else and how we bridge the gap between those two and get closer to that idealized version of it uh, is the challenge that that Apple faces and any other company that works in technology faces is the, the eventual goal to get to a certain point. Certainly, Apple would like to make some sort of advanced augmented reality headset uh, that could complement their current lineup of products, but the technology is just not there, and that's what Tim's saying. At the same time, you know, they're they're making these different models of phones, and the Peter Thiel complaint is the one that says that the phone is a commodity, that everything that can be invented for the phone pretty much has oh, been invented he's, for the he's, phone. Yeah, okay, good luck with that. It's an opinion, and it's one that's probably oft repeated by the people that are criticizing your comment on Twitter, for example. <laughs> the thing is, is you have to question, is is the interface that we use for the phone today, is this you know 4.7 inch or whatever square of glass, are we always going to carry around squares of glass, or is this going to change? And if it changes, what does it change into? Does it change into something that's head-worn? Does it change into something that's a combination of head-worn and wrist-worn? Do we do we need to be married to these things taking up space in the pocket as the interface, or can they simply be the battery and graphics processing and live in the pocket? You know, I, I've been a, a believer for a while that um, eventually we get back to a bunch of quote-unquote dumb terminals, right? Not Not dumb in the sense that, you know, an old dumb terminal used to be, but the device becomes yours whenever whatever it is you need, whether you need a Mac, whether you need an iPad, whether you just need a, a watch, whether you have a heads-up display or something. Um, it, your information follows with you. It's secure. You're identified. It, it's it's safe, um, and and it all syncs through the cloud. That's the network as a computer. Right. And yeah, I, we've been talking about that for ages. Sun, Sun and Oracle and all of those guys used to love the idea of the the network computer or the dumb terminal or the uh, 
you know, recently we were talking about it in terms of uh, making all of the apps live in the cloud and only pulling them when you need them. And we're we're already well on our way to that future, but it's really easy to forget that or not to see it when you're living in the moment, right? Think about even three, four, five years ago. Uh, if you dropped your phone in the toilet or something and it was ruined, it was like the end of the world. When was the last time you plugged into iTunes? Did you back it up? Did you sync it? Oh, man, you know, such a big deal. Now it's like... You could lose your phone and it would have been backed up like five minutes ago. You know, like your photos are instantly uploaded to the cloud. It's last to, night. Uh, yeah. Every fine. every night at, uh, without iCloud, it backs up wirelessly. It used to be that getting a new phone or getting a new computer or getting any new piece of technology was a huge deal. It was like, oh, no, I got to get an external hard drive and I got to transfer over all my music and all my photos. It was this big process. You had redundancies because you were afraid that you were going to lose all your files. And certainly a lot of people still do that. But now it's far less essential because so much of what we're doing is in the cloud and it is this networked computing in a way, certainly not to its fully realized potential, but we're well on our way there. Yeah. Well, that was always the pitch that Google gave at I.O. for a Chromebook, right? The first right. I, I was at I.O. three or four years in a row. And every time they brought a Chromebook, um, Sundar would tell us that, you know, the, the demonstration, the presentation, the slideware before the, the announcement was – you know, and with a Chromebook, you can drop it in a river and you won't lose anything. And they wanted to sell that to education and business. And they, they accomplished half of that, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, uh, on the computer, things have gotten less app-centric and more web-centric. But on the phone, it's still very app-centric. And I think it's going to stay that way. Just two different use cases. Yeah, and I've seen different demonstrations of phones that want to be web-centric and forget the app universe. It never quite works out that way. Yeah. There's there's something about the experience that an app can deliver that the web doesn't necessarily pull off. And especially and of course, when the, the screen real estate is limited and you're dealing with a variety of sizes and stuff. Um, it's much better to have an efficiency through an app that you wouldn't be able to get a consistent experience that you could have through an app that you just can't get from the web. And that's partly why I ended up with an app store in the first place. The, yeah. the original idea was that the app store was the web, and that's why we didn't get an app store until the the iPhone 3, 3G. Right. But, uh, you know, having the web locally save data on your phone is not a great idea. Security issues, that sort of stuff. Well, HTML5 cache goes a long way for making that work. Until it hadn't, but, but that's a relatively Until you new have invention. three tabs <laughs> open on Safari on your phone, and then it loses the data from one of them. And it's like having everything in its own isolated app is a much better way of doing it. Yeah, I'll give you that. So what else did you learn from Johnny Ive? He talked about how, you know, their vision for the the iPhone 10 was five years in the making and they had these big, huge, um, you know, concept uh, uh, things in their labs that they were, which, you know, it's not surprising. It takes time to get technology to the place where you want it. And they finally reached a point where they felt like they could do it, which is why you see the iPhone 10 this year. And another th interesting thing that he talked about was... Um, uh, just about how the most rewarding thing for him is not releasing the product. He doesn't really care, he says, when the product comes out, which I guess makes sense if you're thinking about it in that way, because he's already been toying with it and involved in it and whatever, and now it's out in the world. He said, other than the creation process of developing new products, what brings him the most joy is hearing from customers who it changes their lives for the better. Somebody who has been personally affected by it in a way that, you know, it's become a tool to truly improve their lives. And one of the questions that he was asked was, you know, about 
people overusing their phones. And Johnny admitted, he said, uh, certainly with any tool that is created, there are pros and there are cons. And with the iPhone, uh, one of the cons of, of its creation is that people are kind of like addicted to their phone. And um, he was asked, you know, what can Apple do about that? And he kind of gave a joking response that his new Apple Watch Series 3 that he was wearing, a white ceramic one, is, is kind of the solution to that for that. But it was telling because it kind of influences Apple's development process. And they see a problem, one that they are partially responsible for, and they try to address it and say, how can we get people away from their phones? How can we make them feel like they're still connected and they're not losing anything uh, but they still have access, you know, they still have access to everything, but they're not glued to this device, you know, obsessively checking Facebook and and stuff like that. And then the, the final thing um, that I uh, found interesting, and, and this is stuff that he's talked about in interviews before, but it was it was enjoyable for me to hear it, you know, straight from him while I was there, was about how focused Steve Jobs was and what a uh, great teacher he was for him, especially in teaching him how to say no. And Johnny said when when Steve first told him that to say no to things, he would say no to things that he didn't want or didn't care about. But he realized the, the sacrificial real- things that he'd set out there to be able to be sabotaged. Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, giving something up for Lent, and you go, well, I just won't eat chocolate, and I never eat chocolate, so who cares, right? Um, right. But uh, uh, he was saying, you know, there were things that he was passionate about that he wanted to work on that he wanted to turn into products at Apple. And they, it just wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right product. It wasn't the right idea. And he had to walk away from it. And he said that was the toughest lesson for him to learn. And he still struggles with it to this day. But it was uh, it was very poignant, I think. You know, and, and they've shown us that before in the uh, Thousand Nose video that they played before one of the events. Yes. It's... It's always nice hearing the anecdote directly, though. Yes. You know, one of the uh, one of the other anecdotes that I, I remember was I have talking about uh, when he told Jobs that he he was being blunt and being hurtful to his team, and and Jobs said, you know, Johnny, I didn't think you were so vain. Well, what what do you mean vain? <laughs> and uh, the you know Jobs' answer was. You know, you're you're caring more about feelings than than the work and the product right now. If you weren't, you know, you, you don't be precious about this. Just take it and make the better product. And I've, I've bangled the anecdote, I'm sure, but but it was that kind of a sentiment, right? Um, a lot of people caught on to the the quote about the uh, overuse of the device. Yes. You know, and and it's certainly a debate that we talk a lot about in in family households about screen time and how much time kids are on these things. Um, yeah, you know, the it, it comes up among people regularly the the whole idea of putting your phone down on the table and stacking them, and whoever grabs for the phone first pays the bill at the restaurant, kind of thing. It's uh, it's it's a big deal to think about, and I'm, I'm glad that he addressed it. Let's let's move around a little bit. Is, is there anything you want to tell us about your experience being in the second row? <laughs> uh, just uh, a mere breath away from Sir Johnny Ive. It was it was it was cool, you know. Um he's a kind of a larger than life person uh in many ways. I think uh more than anybody else at Apple, um his reputation precedes him. Um and so it was it was a very cool, very unique experience. I, I'm ha- I'm glad that I got to 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 have that. I am too. Neil, thank you for sharing that with us. Of course. Now, you you're a big HomeKit fan. Yes. You you and I both, and and to be fair, there are three of us on Apple Insider staff now that are pretty big into HomeKit in the house. Mm-hmm. IKEA 
has backtracked on their claims of HomeKit support. It seems like they're having technical issues or something. They promised it in August. It didn't come. It was just to come this week. It hasn't launched yet. Um, It seems like they're having a little bit of issue, uh, which is interesting because it seems like HomeKit is getting easier for everybody else. Um, Certainly, I have been very happy with the Philips Hue update for their dimmer switches, which has allowed me to uh, change some of the functions on my wall switch to actually control a fan as well as the lights. I'm very happy with it. But I haven't used any of the uh, IKEA bulbs. Um, I think that uh, it's a good thing whenever they do get it working because IKEA obviously affordable and pretty uh, popular. So I think it'll be a good thing for HomeKit in the long run, but they got to get their house in order first. I I wonder if the IKEA bulbs themselves are Zigbee because if they are, then you can do some some acrobatics and pair them with the Phillips bridge. Perhaps. I, don't, I, I have not messed with them, but this has been a, a going on for a few months now. I mean, it's not really that big a deal at the end of the day. Uh, people will live without their HomeKit connected bulbs, but they are coming still. Excellent. You know, I, I, I like to see more of these accessories make it out there. There's, there's a certain segment that says that IoT is over, that it's boring, that it's kind of done now. Uh, there are a, a certain number of people that are ready to hand it all over to Amazon as having one. No. I think that that we're still in a very nascent stage where there's a lot of teething problems. Um, Google Home, for example, had some of those teething problems with their Home Mini that they released to uh, members of the press. <laughs> Which was listening to you all the time. Which has been your big fear about having a Google or an Amazon mm-hmm. device in your house. And then is fulfilled on day one. There you go. Shocking. Well, you, you say that, although it was kind of shocking because no one expected them to actually do that. Uh you know the the initial home product works just fine without having to do that. So yeah, you know your worst fear is confirmed. <laughs> but um, you know, going, but I was somewhat surprised. Going forward, these smart home devices are basically out of the box going to support built in three or four major platforms, and that's going to be it. It's going to be, uh, you know, Amazon, like, Apple, like Sonos. Yeah, I, that's just the way that it's going to be, and 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 that's fine. That's good. If, if you have an Android phone. If you have Echo, if you have whatever, it'll work with your stuff. That's good. It should. That's the way yeah, it should. And be. I think that that's what has to happen: is that these all of these devices have to be um, interchangeable to, or at least intercompatible. Well, and that's say. what you're seeing with all the most successful ones out there right now. They they support all of it. So now you and I have talked health in the past, and and health kit and accessories like the. Uh, the glucosimeter yep. that was being used for constant monitoring that Tim Cook wore in the past. Uh, it, it looks like there's a new patent application suggesting Apple looking into intelligent blood pressure monitoring. Yeah, I mean, this is one of their health initiatives out there. Um, that Apple explores a lot of concepts that don't actually make it to products. But uh, yeah, this is, this is one of those ones that we discovered this week. Kind of interesting. Yeah. And I think it dovetails, even though we didn't pair it in the articles, I think it dovetails with another one that we discussed that was the uh, the idea of of bands that could be adjusted by the watch on their own yeah. that would have bladders in them and could tension up on, on demand. Yeah. I, 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 as I've said before, I don't see Apple making that product, but I could see them creating a platform for people to make watch-powered or connected devices that uh, – uh, could expand the capabilities of it beyond what it does out of the box. Mm-hmm. You know, here this patent covers a uh, the ability to control a blood pressure cuff actuation, but I'm thinking about those bands that could uh, 
go ahead and tighten themselves up as being the cuff. And so Apple could go ahead and, and actually combine all of it. Just as they have the, the pulse monitoring mm-hmm. in the watch, they could go ahead and add blood pressure monitoring to it. Yeah, it would probably not work very well on your wrist, though. But Well, you know, kind of remains to be seen. I mean, I, <laughs> not, I, I agree also it would be a weird place to read it. Yeah, but, I don't think that's uh, how blood pressure measuring works very accurately. Well, you, you see them in the pharmacy on the, the forearm, so it's not like it's impossible. Yeah. But yeah. It's it's one of those things where it seems like a neat idea, and certainly they patented it. But uh, combining those things would be an interesting application. Yeah, definitely. Now we, we've talked about Apple's Ireland troubles in the past, and and their very different battles with the taxation problems in the EU and all of that. Uh, but Ireland is, continues to provide a very uh, a very warm and welcoming environment for Apple, and Apple has uh, plans to build a data center. In Athenry. Yep. They've been working on it for a while, and it seems like it's getting the go-ahead. There have been a couple of challenges. Those challenges were uh, rejected, and it, it appears that they're going forward. Mm-hmm. They've got plans to build in Denmark and Athenry, and the Denmark project is very near completion. The The Irish cent- data center is catching up. It's just in the planning phases. Mm-hmm. But uh, this this looks like it's going to go forward. The, the people that are battling these sort of data centers, it's it's interesting. The, it's the same person that's behind it. So that besides trying to stop the Apple data center, they were also trying to stop an Amazon data center. Very weird. You know, I'm going to – I wonder what it is that they're opposed to. Maybe they have a it, competitor. It looks as know. if part of <laughs> – Part part of the opposition was was written around the the demands that it would place on the Irish electrical grid, and that the the plans didn't specify how they would cope with greenhouse gas emissions from the data center. There was an effort years ago by, um, and I think it's still ongoing by Greenpeace talking about how data centers are using up a lot of electricity and they're not green. Um, and Apple has responded by making all their operations uh, globally uh, carbon neutral, running on green power, et cetera. So. Um, they're no longer coming after Apple for that kind of stuff. Well, except that this person kind of was. Well, that's not great. Doesn't necessarily mean doesn't mean it's a relevant complaint no. necessarily. Yeah. Interesting. Now, we 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 talked about how the the phone isn't going to always remain the phone. Right. That it's not always going to be the square sheet of glass. Yeah. So it, it looks like Apple is working with LG on screens that can fold. Yeah, this was a weird story, and then a few more things cropped up, so it, it became kind of a big story this week unexpectedly. You know, there's always these, like, pie-in-the-sky, distant rumors about upcoming Apple products, they're going to do this and that and the other thing, and it's like, you can't take any of that stuff seriously, right? Because And we, we've seen foldable and rollable displays. It's not an unheard of. Concepts. Yeah, not, not unheard of. Um, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, uh, Apple of course is pursuing it, but even they cannot know at this point whether or not it will actually become a product they bring to market because economies of scale and, and technology and everything else that, that makes it difficult to produce products like this in the, uh, you know, tens of millions, uh, is, 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 is a problem. So this rumor first cropped up, uh, out of a Korean report, um, on, Wednesday that said that Apple has apparently partnered with LG to look into flexible displays for bendable iPhones or foldable, if you will, uh, to arrive in by 2020 at the earliest. 
So uh, the idea is that LG has some flexible OLED technology. Samsung does as well. But the report said that Apple specifically chose LG because Samsung is currently their sole supplier of OLED for the iPhone X. And they don't want Samsung, who, in addition to making OLEDs, also makes smartphones, they don't want Samsung to be able to uh, get an inside track on what they're working on, essentially. So the rumor is that Apple chose LG specifically so that they could keep it, keep Samsung in the dark. Um, and that's an interesting story. And, and, you know, who knows if it'll actually come to be, to be, but then follow that up with just coincidentally, um, the next day, uh, which is when we're recording this today on Thursday is when the U S patent and trademark office publishes, uh, patent applications from companies. And we go through and scour through them every week. And I went through this morning and lo and behold, what is there a patent application there for, uh, a foldable OLED iPhone just the day after the rumor cropped up. So <laughs> coincidental because uh, the the application is made a year in advance, over a year before it's made public, but it just so happened to be made public this week. And so you have a lot of noise going on here, a lot of chatter. And as we know with Apple, where there's smoke, there's fire. And what this says to me is that they're exploring this probably, they're looking at it, they're working on it. And it's a concept that they think might bear some fruit, but who really knows at this point? Uh, but it's it's fun to think about, and so I I did a follow up on on those two articles just with some speculative stuff because a lot of people on Twitter and a lot of people in the comments and, and stuff were saying things like, "Why would you need a foldable phone? What would be the benefit of this? I don't understand the point of this. I, this isn't this doesn't make any sense to me." And uh, I thought it it needed to kind of be explained, but it was also worth noting that. Uh, the iPhone 10 not having a home button on it kind of in a way would pave the way for a foldable phone because you think about how much the interface was dependent on having this physical button. Now that you've ditched the physical button and you could potentially fold the phone in half, you could start to do interesting things like have a one-handed use with one screen on one side, that sort of stuff. So, you know, why have a foldable phone? Well, the rumor is that next year's iPhone 10 Plus or whatever they want to call it is going to have like a 6.5 inch display. Fit that in your pocket. You know, like you have these like there's demand for these huge, huge, huge phones and they're not very pocketable. And so you could think about very easily where if you could somehow make a phone that would fold in half, it would now be more pocketable, it would be twice as thick, but that doesn't really matter in your pocket as much as the square footage of the screen does. Um, and then also if you fold it in half and not like a book where the screen would be on the inside, but more on the outside, you could still have, you know, one side of the display be usable, um, and still have, you know, uh, like a half height user interface there to do things like quickly respond to a text and stuff like that. So, you know, none of this is to say that I expect that this is going to happen or that I think that this is, you know, an inevitability or anything like that. I think it's still years off, maybe even more than that, but uh, it's fun to think about and, I think it would make sense for Apple to be pursuing it. It's certainly a concept that is more than just uh, a gimmick. Uh, you could see practical applications for it that would make a lot of sense. I, I know exactly what I want. What do you want? I want the very best StarTac ever. <laughs> I want I want the Razor. Yeah, bring it back. Well, with with foldable displays. Yeah. Yeah. But but that's where you have to kind of rethink it too, because clamshells have always been designed, whether it's a 
MacBook, whether it's a Nintendo 3DS, whether it's a whatever a, a StarTac or a Razer, they're designed to protect the screen so it doesn't get scratched and dinged up or whatever. Until they put the stupid little postage stamp size display on the outside of those <laughs> well, things, yeah. which always. Yeah. <laughs> but if you think about it the other way, so uh, that when it clamshells the display is on the outside, now you've you've got a pretty interesting device that could offer the best of both worlds. Something. Uh, as small as an iPhone, pocketable, portable, and then could unfold to the size of a small iPad, essentially, giving you the screen real estate when you need it. The iPad mini comes back. Maybe. Oh, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know that this is going to happen or, or whatever. And there are so many technical challenges that would come with this, including, you know, how do you have a display that doesn't scratch up one that you can touch that doesn't have a weird like soft point in it where the flex is where the where the the hinge would be um the one where all the kids poke until it breaks right how do you how do you make it so that when you unfold it it's a solid device that can be used and and is rigid and then can you know be unlocked and folded or however you do it how do you keep you know uh, the scratch proof of the gorilla glass display with when you can't use gorilla glass anymore i mean there are so many technical challenges to overcome with this that could derail this project entirely. And so that's why I'm saying don't get your hopes up for this, but it makes sense that Apple will be looking into it and it's exciting to think about. File under things Apple's thinking about, but may never be. Exactly. And and foldable OLED displays have practical applications that go beyond um, a foldable physical device. Um, You think about the edge-to-edge nature of the iPhone 10, well, that uses extra OLED pixels that are unused that bleed over into the side of the device. That's how you get an edge-to-edge display. Um, the same thing with the Apple Watch. That has an OLED display as well. So there are companies that are working on these foldable physical devices. Samsung has one supposedly coming next year that they've already teased. Uh, they teased it actually the day the iPhone 10 was announced to try to take away some Apple's thunder. Uh, and Lenovo has shown some tablets that do the same thing that are like a book and kind of fold in half. Uh, I, I think that it's more than a gimmick if you can make it work. Um, but there are going to be sacrifices to get it to work. Um, and you have to weigh those sacrifices and decide whether it's worth it. Much like Apple had to weigh the sacrifice of putting the notch on the iPhone 10 and decide whether or not that was worth it for them. Right. Now, you are a big consumer of movies. I am. We, we've talked about this before. It's no great secret. You you like to watch your I movies. I do. I love movies. And when you purchase them, you make sure that you have codes so that you can watch them on iTunes as well, iTunes right? digital copies with my Blu-rays, yep. Or else. Or else. Yeah. And we've also talked separately about Disney and their approach to streaming services and what they're doing with their their path for media distribution. Yeah. So it, it looks as if there's a Movies Anywhere service mm-hmm. that I'm completely unfamiliar with because I haven't really bothered with trying to uh, to figure out how to watch purchased content like this like you have struggled with. Mm-hmm. So Movies Anywhere is is a thing that Disney has launched. And it's an all-in-one movie viewing service that lets users watch purchased content from five major Hollywood studios on a bunch of different platforms, including iTunes and Google mm-hmm. Play. And and basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to solve the problem of all these fragmented movie libraries. You know, whether it's it's someone who suffered along with Ultraviolet or the iTunes digital copy or bought something from Google Play because that's where it debuted first right. for whatever reason. Yeah. And, and so Disney has pulled together Disney, Sony Pictures, 20th Century Fox, Universal, and Warner Brothers and gotten them all on board to have Disney's Movies Anywhere act as the content locker mm-hmm. 
So Disney's and, had this feature for years now, a few years, and it would be where you'd mm-hmm. go to redeem your iTunes digital copy. And instead of giving you the digital copy code that you would redeem through iTunes, it would take you to Disney Movies Anywhere, um, and then you would enter a code there, and then it would say, choose where you want to get your additional digital copy, and you could click on Google Play, you could click on iTunes, and then it would whisk you away to the appropriate storefront. So they've been doing this for a few years, but now they've added more studios to it, and it's great news. Um, because, you know, Disney wants to have their service, and that's fine. They want to have this, you know, centralized place, but it also plays nice with the other ecosystems that you want to be in, so you get the best of both worlds. Now, my question is, are you limited to picking one of those resulting stores, the Amazon or the Google Play or the iTunes or Vudu, or can you simply go ahead and, and bring them to all of them? As it stands right now, you're limited to the one that you pick where you can redeem it. But my my impression that I'm getting from this going forward is that as long as you can verify that you own it through the Disney digital locker, you're going to be able to access it through any platform. That would be brilliant. Because right now, it's actually a setting, um, if you set up your Disney movies anywhere, it's actually a setting that plugs into your iTunes account. You can actually go to your settings for your iTunes account on your phone or on your computer, and you can see that it's linked to a Disney movies anywhere account. And so they talk to each other. And so I think that where this is heading is that as long as Disney can verify, and this is much easier in a world where everything's streaming and all that, as long as Disney can verify that you own the movie, they don't care. Yeah, you're right, because they, they did this sort of limited-time promo mm-hmm. where they're offering free movies, and users who activate and connect their account with Amazon Video, Google Play, iTunes, or Vudu are eligible to get codes for Ghostbusters, the new one, Ice Age, uh, the Lego, and, and linking that same account with a second participating retailer. You know, they, you know, So if you picked Amazon and then also linked it to your iTunes, then you'd also become qualified to get Big Hero 6, Jason Byrne, and the Lego movie. That's great. So, so the idea is, yes, you should link it to more than one of those, those stores. Yeah, link it to the stores, get your content accessed where you want it, regardless of what device you're on. And, and I think it's a good thing. I, I think that just like we were talking about with HomeKit, if it supports all the platforms, everybody wins. Exactly. Exactly so. Now, we got a survey here, and I, I read this survey initially as well. It says that um, 78% of teenagers surveyed out of a, a group of 6,100 teens said that they owned an iOS or an iPhone device and that 82% are interested in owning one <laughs> intend to buy one. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is Piper Jeffrey's been doing these teen surveys for years. The, the idea is that it gives you an idea of where technology is heading. <laughs> okay. <laughs> teenagers who need their parents to buy them phones uh, who right. are... So 82% responded, yes, we want one, and, and it has no bearing on reality as to what they'll actually Yeah, and get. then maybe when they graduate college, they'll want one, but they also are part of a generation of people that uh, who are liable to adopt new technology all the time. So I don't know how committed they are to certain platforms. I, who cares? <laughs> well, the, the idea of platform lock-in comes from the store, right. right? If you spend all this money as sunk costs on the app store... Yeah then you're going to stay with And the how platform. many of these teenagers are willing to pay for apps? That's a very good question. I would expect... <laughs> None. Um, yeah. Vanishingly small if, if it's on their dad's credit card, maybe. But, you know, like, who cares? Hmm. There was a more interesting uh, survey that CNBC did this week that was talking about the number of Apple devices per household. And I think it was, it said like 65% of American households own at least one Apple product. Well, so think about this, right? If you have two adults that both have iPhones mm-hmm. and an iPad, 
there's your three devices. Now, it's very common for, well, and very common, it has no numbers attached to it, so take it for what we will. But but I, I have anecdotally seen a number of families who have two Android devices as the parent devices, but the kid still gets an iPad yeah. because what other tablet are you going to get? Mm-hmm. You might get a like like a Lenovo Android tablet, mm-hmm. but, you know, the iPad is a frequent choice. And, you know, instead of it being sort of like a parent thing where the parents get the iOS devices and it trickles down to the child, I've seen the reverse happen where the, the kid gets the iPad and then later on the parents switch to iPhone. Yeah. The, the other thing that came from the survey that was interesting is uh, the average in a household uh, of Apple products is 2.6. The average household has 2.6 Apple products. Which turned right, into so that, a uh, uh, funny discussion in the in the comments of people trying to outdo each other of how many Apple devices they own. <laughs> well, that's because those are our I, leaders, I know. right? <laughs> it's just funny. <laughs> the the hardcore listing their device that they haven't touched since two thousand eight, but it's still in the yeah. house, right? <laughs> like I'm giving my old Apple TV to my parents. I thought I was like I could sell it on Craigslist. Like yeah, oh, just they have the Apple TV Gen three and it doesn't have the App Store and stuff. And I figured it'd be easier for them if they use Siri and all that. So I was just like, I'll just mail you the old one. Just take it. I I am still impressed with how well Siri works on the Apple TV fourth. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'm very pleased with that. I have I have no need to upgrade to the 4K version at this time. I don't have a 4K display. Yeah, there's. I think it's perfectly fine. Yeah. Now I wonder that that survey doesn't count any sort of the Beats line, does it? It's just all iOS devices. I believe right? so. Yeah. It was uh, okay. iPhone, Mac, iPad, iPod, or Watch. All right. Well, we had a review of of the Beats Studio Three wireless mm-hmm. headphones on the uh, the yeah. site. Uh, Roger wrote this for mm-hmm. us and. Roger is is a headphone connoisseur, <laughs> as it were. He's a, a gourmet yes. at this, and uh, he likes these. I think he was he was pretty pleased with them. He gave them a four out of five, and uh, his comments are that it doesn't sound a whole lot better than the Solo Two wireless. But the thing to know is is that the W One features. And the noise cancellation do make it worthwhile. Yeah, it's the only way to get them. The yeah, the the ability to have the the W ones cloud syncing so that they're paired with all of your devices and hand off properly. Uh, the only way to get that is this, and it, it's competitive on noise cancellation with the Quiet Comfort thirty fives. So he was pleased. W one is a um, game changer. W one once you get it, you can't really go back. But I have one complaint about it. When it first launched. It automatically switched between devices without any required for input. This apparently proved to be a problem for Apple, and they've changed how it's operated since. So, I first, uh, I and I did, I did encounter when this was a problem. So, I would uh, wear my W one. I was wearing Power Beats three at the time. I would wear my my Power Beats at the gym. And if I brought my phone and my watch and I was tracking my run with my watch on a treadmill, but I was listening to music on my phone, my watch would send alerts and would hijack the audio of the headphones and then it would stop playing music on my phone and I have to manually switch back. So that's the reason that they changed this. So it used to automatically switch between devices without prompts, but now you have to prompt it on the device to say, I want to play this to my AirPods. I wish it went back to the way that it did and they kind of figured out a way to do it, but I guess it was too much of a technical challenge because it made for a bad user interface or a bad user experience. But uh, so now, like if I go for a run with my AirPods and I choose music, I, it'll say, where do you want to play this to? It just it shows a prompt. And then I just choose, oh, my AirPods. And then and then it's good. Um, and the same thing with like when I'm listening to music, I have to like manually 
tap on the audio output button, choose AirPods, it's, it connects. It's still much easier, by the way, than switching and unpairing and repairing Bluetooth headphones. But uh, they did take one step and add it back into the process, and it's a little disappointing. Well, I have a feeling that they they found exactly what you found. Yes. You know, they have a number of people who have the AirPods. They have a number of people or W1 equipped chips, uh, headphones. They have a number of people who have their phones and their watches mm-hmm. on them and are playing music from one source and switching with the other, right? Yeah. They all encountered the same problem yeah. you did. And what they had to figure out was not what is the most elegant way to solve this, but what is the way that is most apparent to the end user. Which is the least frustrating way of solving this. Right. What what way is going to help the end user understand what's going on and do what they expect? Yeah. And and the answer is just, for starters, have the user tell us what to do and do that. But it was nice to pop your AirPods in and just start playing on one device and it just worked. It was cool, but I understand it. It was was a little problematic. Yeah, the, the problem is sometimes when you aim for doing something that's magical like that, that there are are these edge cases that break it. And when those edge cases pop up for enough people, you just have to say, forget it. And, and this is what we've talked about a number of times when it comes to machine learning, AI, and the Apple Watch, and having a device that knows things, right? So I keep saying the best way that the Apple Watch could operate is if you have to interact with it at the least possible. But in order to do that, it has to be smart and you know smart enough to know contextually aware things. And that's so hard to do. And once it breaks, it falls apart. And so you have to go slow on that kind of stuff because if you start presenting grocery lists to people while they're at the bank or, you know, uh, bringing up their driving playlist with their, while they're at the gym or interpreting them driving as being out on a run or something, you're just going to make people want to throw their watch well, out the window. The the classic example, and it's not an Apple one, but it was the, uh, the, the door lock that is able to proximity lock based on or proximity unlock based on your range of it and and also can trigger scripts to adjust your in-home lighting so you leave your house your door locks and your lights turn off on all the people that are still inside the house (laughs) or or the other example um somebody is at the front door and you want to go up and see who it is and you go to look through the people and then your lock senses that your phone is there and goes oh i'll unlock the door for you (laughs) and lets in the burglar that's standing outside. person (laughs) yes yeah nice yeah i mean you know and a lot of those issues have been resolved but uh that's why you have to go slow with uh, with smart devices because uh, it can go it can go wrong very quickly yes it can now, the we, we we've seen a number of little changes moving around the the executive team within mm-hmm. Apple in in recent weeks, and one of the stories we had was that an Apple executive who's tasked with managing the back end for iCloud products, including the iCloud Drive product, has left the company. Yeah, I mean. Silicon Valley has a lot of turnover amongst employees, even with executives. It's hard to read into these type of things, whether they were chased out or whether they, you know, just left because they wanted to go somewhere else. They had a different opportunity or there weren't enough challenges for them. You know, we've heard stories about people that leave Apple because of their culture and they just don't like the way that the that it's not conducive for people to uh, get the most out of what they want to do personally. Uh, and then, you know, somebody like Scott Forstall gets chased out of Apple and they act like it was a mutual thing. And, oh, he's, you know, he's deciding to leave. And it's like, no, he was fired. So I, I, when these things come up, you can't read into them too much. There, there's always more of a story to it than meets the eye. 
Right. But what we do know is that iCloud has had a number of different outages and some teething problems along the way over its history. And and that goes back to the days when it was dot Mac mm-hmm. or iTools or or you know, any of the names that it's yeah. been under. The uh, my favorite was when it was dot yeah. me. I, I still like my dot right. me address. But the 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 thing is is you know this this kind of change leaves open the possibility for the person that takes on the responsibilities to really shift focus and and try and solve these issues. I think that iCloud has been pretty good um, for a few years now. There there used to be outages and random issues and problems and stuff, um, but uh, I've been pretty happy with iCloud. I can't think of any major outages in the last few years, no no serious issues. Um, I've had corrupted iCloud. Have you? I haven't had any of those. Uh, yeah, I still I have. have a problem with my Mac where iMessages are not coming through, but I'm, I don't think that's an iCloud issue. I think that's just an issue with something got corrupted on the install of High Sierra on my Mac, and I'm going to have to just wipe it. But um, that's that's the closest I've had to I a have, problem. I have iCloud address book that won't sync to my Mac. Uh, is that an iCloud issue, though, or is that a software issue on your end? Because uh, it, Over two reinstalls, I'm thinking it's an iCloud yeah, issue. Yeah, it could be. I don't know. I, I have the address book on my phone, and when I update a record on my phone, it never makes it back to this Mac. Well, there you go. That's why he was fired. <laughs> we, we can hope We can hope that when they build their new data center in Athenry, that all of these things will be all better. We can hope. <laughs> well, that, that brings us to the end of the stories that I have. Neil, is there anything you'd like to talk about? Um, no, I, I think that uh, that covers it pretty well. Fantastic. Well, this has been another episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. Please try our iPhone app. Try and and if you do, give us a review if you're willing on the app store for our, our app and for the podcast. We do love to hear from you. Please give us feedback. Neil, where can people find you to give you feedback? You can find me on Twitter at this is Neil, and you can read my stuff on appleinsider.com or through the app. And if you install the Apple Insider app and turn on push notifications, you will get uh, – I'll try not to bug you too much, but I do send push notifications for big stories, including the uh, foldable iPhone patent that we found this morning. So uh, if you want to get the news as it happens, uh, be sure to check out the app as well. And I'm Ed Marks on Twitter, and you will find us here on the Apple Insider podcast and AppleInsider.com. We'll be back next week with more. Thank you.